You are listening to the Overflow Podcast, a ministry of First Denton. For more information on Overflow, please visit overflowdenton.org. How y'all doing tonight? Good? How y'all doing tonight? Love it. Hey, if you got Bibles or Bible apps, Ephesians 2. Let's go there. Ephesians 2. We'll start in verse 1 here in just a second. If you don't have uh, a Bible or Bible app, I'm sure somebody around you has one. They'd love for you to look at it with them. Uh, Ephesians 2, starting in verse 1. Let me just say, uh, as you're kind of getting to that place, I know it's kind of tight in here. We've got a lot of people. That's good. Uh, there's like a couple of seats up here, here and there. And when you walk in with four people, it's weird because you all want to sit together. And we just got to be cozy tonight, yeah? makes it good. Hey, for those of you who don't know, my name is Wade. Uh, here's the deal. Uh, I love this ministry. Uh, Zach and the, the team are doing such a great job over at First Dent with this. And uh, to be able to have a chance to reach out uh, to college students is a beautiful thing. But like Zach said, a place to be able to come and to understand who you are. Uh, as he was saying, even in the first week, it's a place to know that you don't just need to exist. You have a chance to live. And that's why this place exists. And so my hope is uh, as we continue on, uh, we have a chance to see God not only move in your life, but throughout the semester, we see God move through your life. Uh, I'm not on staff at the church. They give me the opportunity to speak here every once in a while, and, uh, and that makes me excited. I love to hang out uh, and to speak and to see God move. So let's just see what he does tonight. Yeah, let's pray to the Lord Jesus. Uh, I ask in the next few minutes uh, that you would allow your word to come to life, because in the end, uh, your word is what matters. God, as I do illustrations, as I tell stories, I, I pray that we understand that stories don't change our lives, but, but the illumination of your word is what changes us forever. So I pray that you do, as we just sang, that you draw us deeper still, that we go deeper even tonight than we have ever been, that we choose to not only read the word, but as we leave this place, we choose to do the word. So, Father, we thank you for that, and we follow you. It's in Jesus Christ's name we pray. All of us say amen. amen. Uh, here's the deal. I, I say this. Um, I'm, I'm kind of an information freak, and when I say that, I get super excited when I'm around smart people because I'm not that smart. Uh, I took, like, an Uber on the way up here from the airport, and I just got intrigued. I know the guy did not want to talk to me, but I found out he majored in genetics. And so I'm just like, dude, that's not like, you know, physical education or something. So... Not that there's anything wrong with physical education, for all you who do that. It's one of those things where I just thought, dude, really? And so I, I, I'm that guy that doesn't know a lot about something, but I know a little bit about a whole bunch of different things. And I've always been one that wants to know about trivial things and trivia answers and questions. And as much as I can know, I've always wanted to get to know. I was that way as a kid. Here's the deal. When I was like 9 or 10 years old, my favorite... Uh, Christmas present to ever get was the Guinness Booker World Records. And, and listen, and I'm telling you, my, my parents would love to give me that because it would like consume me for like three or four hours. I would sit in one spot and I was the guy that wanted to know who can throw a baseball the fastest and who can like go the furthest on one tank of gas in a plane before it crashes and like all kinds of weird little things they have in there. I was that guy that would sit there and I would get that, that book and I would read it and I love to know all that it offered. And it was interesting because I would get that uh, book every Christmas. I mean, it was like an annual book. That's why it's the Guinness Book of World Records. And here's what's weird. I was thinking about it not too long ago, but I don't even remember when I stopped getting that book for Christmas. It was just like one of those moments that I just did not get it. And I don't even remember what age, but I just kind of 
Like, didn't even let it bother me. It's like one of those things. The Bible says it. You know, when you become a man, you allow childish things to just go away. And it was that way in my life until maybe three years ago when I got up for Christmas and I've got like a 14-year-old and 10-year-old daughter and, and, you know, they're ready to come downstairs and like check out all that like we bought, not Santa, but we bought it for them. And we got there to the tree. It was interesting because I saw a present like for me. And that's weird because I'm the one who bought all the presents. And, and I, I sit there and I see it and I was like, wait, who in the world did this? And I saw it and my wife had gotten me the 50th anniversary of the Guinness Book of World Records. Dude, I was so pumped. It was unimaginable. I mean, my girls were like, when do we get to open presents? I was like, I don't care. I mean, like, I mean, I, I mean I'm opening this book and I'm serious. It was like I was a little kid. I mean, I was sitting there going through all of the different like entries that were there and saw all the, here's what was weird. I remember about 30 minutes into it. I remember reading a record that I remember reading when I was like 10 years old. Now, the reason the Guinness Book of World Records is an annual book is so that you would break the record. That's the whole point. Somebody reads it and says, I can beat that and I can be better than that. I can be faster than that. And I remember thinking after all of these years, that record has never been broken. And here's the deal. I don't think it ever will. It's a lady by the name of Hetty Green that died in 1916, and she's gone down in history as being the greatest miser or the stingiest person that's ever walked the face of the earth. I mean, if you read her story, it's quite interesting because you find out that she ate cold oatmeal every day of her life because she never wanted to spend the money to warm up the water to make it hot. She had a son later on in life, I think it was when he was probably college age, that got a cut on his leg and she couldn't find a free doctor, a free clinic. She tried to find a free hospital, free health care, and she could not find one. And she waited so long to get something for free that it became so infected they had to amputate her son's leg. Now, when you hear a story like that, you can sit back and say, well, not everybody has money and not everybody has the access to health care like everybody else. But what you read in her entry and about her life is this. When Hedy Green died in 1960. She had $100 million in the bank. Literally, she's gone down in history as being the stingiest person that's ever walked the face of this earth. Here's the deal, and here's what I'm trying to get across to you tonight. The book of Ephesians was written so that you would not live your spiritual life that way. In other words, there's a lot of people that think that Christianity is all about just knowing that you can pray a prayer or just knowing that you can just show up sometime. But I said it last week when I was speaking, Jesus didn't die on a cross so that you would go to church. He died on a cross so you would be the church. And it's in understanding that that you understand that Ephesians is talking about what it means that not only do you read this, but you choose to be this and to do this. In other words, if you really study the book of Ephesians, you'll find out it was a letter that was written not to a church, but it was written to the church. In other words, if you go through a study, the book of Colossians was written to the church at Colossae. Philippians to the church at Philippi. But Ephesians was written as a circular letter to all the churches in Asia Minor. Which means the idea of it was this. He wrote this letter to all these churches he had started. And he was saying this, hey, church number one, you need to read this, understand it, live it. Then you give it to church number two. You read it, understand it, and you live it. Then you pass the letter on to church number three. To the point to where all of them chose not to just have a personal letter, but it was for the church. If you do a little bit deeper study on it, you'll find out that it's really broken into two different books, the book of Ephesians. 
In other words, chapters 1, 2, and 3 are very theological, and chapters 4, 5, and 6 are very practical. In other words, the first half of the book tells you how you should think, and the second half tells you how you should live. And it wasn't too long ago that I was reading through it, and I got to Ephesians 1, and when you really get to the end of chapter 1, he talks about how God pursues us, and he gives us a relationship with him. We call it salvation, and it's a beautiful thing. But then when he turns the corner in chapter 2, he's trying to get the attention of not just a church, but the church. And when I saw this, I thought maybe this could be a good place for us to land. So if you've got your Bibles or Bible apps, just read this with me. Ephesians 2, starting in verse 1, he says, But as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live, when you followed the ways of the world, and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. He said, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following the desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace that you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. In order that in the coming ages he might show his incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace that you have been saved. Through faith, this is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. It's not by works so that no man can boast. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he prepared in advance for us to do. It's interesting. I mean, when you have a chance to read those 10 verses, and they're very popular in the church, but you start to find out that there is a progression that he's trying to get the church's attention on. There's a progression that happens that if you are ever going to be who God wants you to be, you've got to get to the point that not only do you do what he's saying, but you do it in the order that he's saying. In other words, last week we talked about the idea of what it means that we want to truly not only recognize Jesus, but we want to get to the point where we follow him no matter what. Why? Because we're in love with him and we want to be as he wants us to be. But it's in the midst of that excitement that he's trying to get the attention of the church here. And he's saying this. Hey, listen, there's some things that you need to understand. And there's a progression that all of us have to go on if we're ever going to say we are truly desiring to live the way God has called us to live. So instead of preaching this to you, I'm going to talk it out with you because this is a passion of mine because I did not grow up in the church. I say that for a very interesting reason because of this. We live in a world, especially in this part of our country, where a lot of people grew up in church. And if you're not careful, you're going to go through some problems. So I'm going to ask this question right now. How many of you, for the most part, have been in church for the most part your entire life? Just raise your hands. The majority of you, put your hands back down. I'll say to you like this, I didn't walk into a church until I was 13 years old. The weirdest place I'd ever been in my life. But understand this, my daughters are having a completely different experience. My daughters are growing up, going to a Christian school, going to vacation Bible school, and literally my daughters are memorizing verses when they were six and seven years old that I didn't even read until I got to seminary. And I started to see something going on, and I thought, maybe we need to talk about this, because there's one thing that I see in the church more than anything, and it's a word called apathy. It's almost like you've just been here all your life, and 
Church is just something that you just kind of are and you just kind of do and you blindlessly don't even think about it. And I think that Paul's trying to get our attention here. In the first four verses, it's interesting because he's literally trying to get spiritual arrogance out of the church, which happens when you're apathetic. You start to think that you've got everything under control. You start to think that you kind of know all the answers. And that's what happens even with my girls. They'll sit there and say, oh, but dad, I know John 3.16. And my answer is this all the time. I don't care if you know it. What does it mean? See, in other words, it's not just something that you regurgitate. It's there. And he's literally in the first four verses trying to get the church's attention to get spiritual arrogance out. And he says it like this. We, all of you who grew up in church, were among them at one time. We were just like them. We gratified the desires of our sinful nature, by the way, just like them. Do you know what I find interesting? I find it interesting that church people are shocked when people sin. No, I'm being serious. You go to church and you hear the murmurings, and maybe it's just because I'm the itinerant guy that goes to church and church, and people say stuff to me because I'm leaving, so you don't care if I know. It's kind of interesting because I go, and you'll hear the murmurings, and it goes something like this. Can you believe that 16-year-old girl got pregnant? Can you believe that pastor's kid did drugs? Can you believe that family, that man and woman got divorced? And here's what Paul's saying to you church people. You were just like them. Before you start judging them, remember, that's you. That's me. He's saying all of us were just like them before we came to Christ. And that's when I saw the progression. If you look at Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, here's the progression and here's how it goes. Who you were leads you to understand who you are. And then you're released to know who you're meant to be. So we'll take it a little deeper. Understanding who you were before Christ gives you a deeper meaning of who you are in Christ. And then when you know that, you realize who you're meant to be. You were his workmanship. Here's the deal. A lot of people that grow up in church switch the order around and it confuses you. And that's what leads to apathy. You start off with this. Well, it's not who I was. I mean, this is who I am. I mean, I've been in church all my life. And I've just been a Christian forever. Uh, no, you haven't. I've heard people say that my entire life. I've been a Christian all my life. In case you don't know, no, you haven't. There is a point of salvation. Christianity doesn't happen by osmosis. You understand what I'm saying? But you get to that point, and here's what I found out. People start off with, well, this is who I am. Then they reverse it, and they turn 17, and they recognize their friends are having fun, and they decide to revert to who they were before Christ and do dumb things. And then what happens is you finally graduate college, you get married, you have a couple of kids, and I see it all the time. You look at your husband and your wife one day and say, I'm not sure what we're supposed to do. I think we're supposed to raise our kids in church now. And you go to church and you sit there and do nothing. It's only when you understand not only the progression, but you do it in that order that it makes sense. Who you were leads you to understand who you are, and then you know who you're meant to be. So let's start off. Who you were. He constantly says who you were before Christ. We were just like them. Now understand, when he is speaking, he is speaking to people in that moment that every one of them knew the day of their salvation. Now like I'm trying to tell you, my daughters are growing up with a very different experience 
And so because of that, they see things in a different way. And I view church in a different way. Because I didn't go to church until I was 13. I see it in a certain light, but my daughters see it in a different light. I'll give you this illustration with them. My oldest daughter went to public school through fourth grade. We put my youngest daughter in a Christian school in kindergarten because we didn't know where we wanted to go to school at that point because we were tired of the like, public school that my other daughter was going to. And finally I said this, hey, we're just going to put both of y'all in the Christian school. Here's what's interesting. My youngest one knows nothing different than the Christian school. The whole school, K through 12, has to memorize a verse every single week. My youngest daughter, who's been in school all her life, says this every week. Why do we have to do this? This is so boring. But my oldest daughter says this. Are you being serious? This is awesome. I couldn't even take my Bible to school. This is the greatest thing I've ever seen. And they see it in different lights. I started to realize the whole understanding who you were because I did a Bible study in Birmingham. I still do, but it was a bunch of high school students back then. And it was interesting because we had one girl that was different than everybody else. She just couldn't see it the same way. I, I led this girl to the Lord when she was 16 in a youth camp. Her name's Shelby, and listen to me. She was Jewish when she got saved. When I say Jewish, didn't grow up Jewish. She went to synagogue. When that girl gave her life to Jesus at 16, everything changed. I mean everything. Everybody knew about Shelby. Shelby witnesses to everybody. Shelby tells everybody about Jesus. Shelby's got her Bible all over the place. And that's what it would be from our church. Oh, there goes Shelby. We know Shelby's going to have her Bible at school. We know Shelby's going to do this. Shelby's going to do that. And she was always passionate for people to know Jesus. Every night at the Bible study... I'll say, hey, man, anybody want to pray before we get into the Word? Hey, real quick, pray, please pray for my mom and dad. They both need Jesus really bad. That was Shelby every time. Her dad called me up one day and said, hey, is there any possible way I could come to the Bible study one night? I know it's a bunch of high school kids, but is there any possible way I could come? And I said, absolutely. we got nothing to hide. Come on in, man. He's a famous sports writer in Birmingham for the news newspaper. And it was interesting because we got a lot of football players coming back then. They all wanted to hang out with him. And Shelby sits right next to her dad. And I said this. Hey, anybody got any questions? Anybody got any prayer requests? Shelby raises her hand. And I said, yes, Shelby. She said, please pray for my mom and dad. They both need Jesus really bad. <laughs> you see, I can see your face. And just to help you out. Because I know if y'all were sitting there, y'all would have done it. <gasps> she didn't. <laughs> That's not Jesusly correct. <laughs> Okay, And just so you know, even though I didn't grow up in church, I got what you're saying, but I let it slide. And as soon as the Bible study was over, you know, all the football players talking to sportscaster dad, and I walked over to Shelby and I'll still never forget. I said, hey, Shelby, come real quick. And she leans in and says, I know what you're going to say. I don't have time to be politically correct. I need my dad to know Jesus. That was Shelby. Shelby's going to witness to everybody. She's going to do it. She was a mass texter, which means if you're in her phone, she texts out Bible verses every day. Every day, you get them. Here's what was interesting. People got tired of that. And they were like, Shelby, please take me off your text list. Take me out of your phone. I'm so sick and tired of getting those verses every day. Sometimes you do it three times a day. Just so you know, the people that were complaining about it and asking to get off the text list, they went to church with her. Completely confused her. 
she came up to me and says, wait, how in the world would Christians not want as many verses as they possibly can from any angle they can get it? And I just let it slide. She witnessed to everybody. When I say that, one night she came to the Bible study and she didn't have her Bible. And I'm, listen, I don't do that, right? I mean, if you're in Bible study, like, like a little hardcore, bring your Bible. And so she comes in, especially her. I go, Shelby, what are you doing? You don't have your Bible? She goes, wait, I'm so sorry. I was at work today, and this lady came in, older lady, and she had this, like, cross necklace on, and I asked her if she understood what it meant. I led her to the Lord, and she didn't have a Bible, and so I gave her my Bible. And I said, you know what? That's my deal with you. Every time you lead somebody to the Lord, you give your Bible away, and I'm going to buy you a Bible. <laughs> Chick is making me poor. <laughs> now, I'm, and I'm being serious when I say this. After 20 Bibles I bought, I was like, give them a coupon. <laughs> Like, this is kind of getting ridiculous. And that's the way it went. Everybody knew Shelby. Every, oh, there goes Shelby. Oh, we know she's going to be witnessing. And that was the attitude. And one night after the Bible study, she looks at me and says this. Can I ask you a question? I go, what's that? She goes, why do so many people make fun of me? Just so you know, she wasn't talking about people outside the church. She was talking about people that grew up in the church. They were making fun of her for living this. And you know what I said to her that day? I said, Shelby, I don't know why they make fun of you, but I need you to know something today. She goes, what's that? They're going to make fun of you for the rest of your life. She goes, how do you know? I said, because they still make fun of me. And I'm not saying particularly you, but listen, when I go to your church, because I speak in churches all the time, it happens every time. I mean, I come and hang out at college and we do this thing, but th th this is me when I'm on Sunday morning. And I, I tell you, I, every adult, hey man, like you're like, whoa, are you like an adult riddling or something? I get that everywhere I go. My kids will be with me and my little girls will be with me. And people will literally walk up to them and go, is your dad like this at home? And it's like they want to look and go, no, he's just faking it. <laughs> and it's a weird thing. And I want to say this to you out loud because I can't say it out loud because I'm a preacher. You're supposed to be politically correct, right? This is what I want to say to people. When they say, well, are you like an adult Ridley? I'm going to look at them and just say, no, I think I just love Jesus more than you. <laughs> and I'm not even being mean to you. I'm trying to say this, and I want to say this so my heart comes across to your heart, and you don't think I'm trying to be arrogant. Listen, I still have not gotten over the fact that I was saved when I was 13 years old. I still am shocked every day that I get to go to heaven. I still wake up and realize that I am forgiven of every sin, not only that I've committed, but will commit. And it makes no sense whatsoever. That excites me every once in a while. And what I started to realize was this. Shelby and I see things a little differently than people that grew up in church. And it's not that we see things better, by the way. Because some of you have had the blessing of growing up in church, because I, I certainly wish I had that chance. But listen to me when I say this. Shelby and I live a different way, and we're super excited. Here's why. We vividly remember what it was like to be lost. When he says, you were just like them, they knew what he was talking about. Here's the issue. A lot of you in this room got saved when you were five. You became a follower of Christ when you were seven. Here's the deal. I, I'm not even here to talk you out of it. Here's what I'm saying to you. That's okay. The problem is you become apathetic because your parents forgot to tell you that when you were four, you were a serial killer. 
They didn't tell you at three you were a drug dealer. <laughs> Which means this. A lot of you don't even remember life before church, do you? It's all you know. And here's the deal. That's okay. But it means that those who've had the awesome blessing of growing up in church, it means you've got to go an extra step that I don't have to. You need to remind yourself biblically of who you were before Christ. You may not remember it, but there is a word that I want you to settle in on your mind that you need to remember for the rest of your life. It's called depravity. Depravity means you had no hope. Before Christ, there was no remission of your sins. Before Christ, there was no chance for you to get into heaven ever. There was no grace. There was no forgiveness. But by his grace, you were saved. Every once in a while, when you get to a place that you're kind of apathetic or you just think, man, I just do this all the time, remind yourself that before Christ, you were just like them. He says, understanding who you were leads you to realize, number two, who you are. He says it the same way, but in two different ways. And if you've got your Bibles open, just, just look at it. He says it interesting. When he changes his, but by his grace... It says, we have been saved by... It says, all of us look among them at one time, gratifying the desires of our sinful nature. Following, like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ. It is by grace that you have been saved. It's interesting because if you ever want to know who you are in Christ, here's what he says. You've been saved by God's grace. That's what that means. For you to be in Christ, for you to be a follower of Christ, for you to say, I am a Christian, the definition of that means you are saved by his grace. Here's what that means. That means God can never do anything about that again. Once God gives you, by grace, a gift, he never chooses to take it back. There's never a point where God goes, you know what, I'm rethinking this and I don't like how you lived last night, so I'm not going to give you salvation today. When you were saved by God's grace, it means you didn't do anything to earn it. You did not deserve it. You will never do anything to deserve it. It's by his grace, because of his great love, he loved you so much, even when you were dead in your transgressions, he saved you. It's a beautiful thing to think that. It means God can never mess it up. Once he's given it to you by grace... You were saved by God's grace forever. But then he says something else. Two verses later, he says, you're saved by God's grace so that no man can boast. That's where it gets interesting for me. He goes from God's view of salvation to your view of salvation. In other words, you're saved by God's grace. He loved you so much. Even when you were a sinner, he said, you know what? I'm going to save you anyway. You don't deserve it, but you get it. But then he goes further and he says, but by the way, you've also been saved by God's grace. It is a gift of God so that no man can boast. Here's what that means. You're saved by God's grace. That's who you are in Christ. But you're also saved by God's grace so that no man can boast. So when you look at the two, here's what it means. When you're saved by God's grace, God can never mess up salvation. It's who he is. You have it forever. He gives it to you forever. Being saved by God's grace so that no man can boast means you cannot mess up your salvation either. This is important for you to understand. Because I've come in contact with a lot of people in the church that battle spiritually with a lot of things. Now here's the deal. 
The number one thing, issue that I deal with in the church, because I go to church to church, conference to conference, college group to college group, here's the deal. When you put, what's the biggest thing I deal with? It's not drugs. It's not divorce. You know what the number one thing I deal with is? Assurance of salvation. It happens because we have forgotten the second part of this. You're saved by God's grace so that no man can boast. So if you're saved by God's grace, it means God can't do anything about it. He can't mess it up. It's the nature of who he is. But saved by God's grace at the moment again, folks, means this. If you didn't earn your salvation, you can't do anything bad enough to lose it. I, I don't know if you understand that. There's a lot of people that get to that place that they commit that sin that they wish they had never committed. And it starts to confuse them. And they all of a sudden forget grace. They all of a sudden forget what it means to truly have grace in their life. And he's saying... So that no man can boast, if God gave it to you when you didn't deserve it, then you can't do anything bad enough. I say it like this. There's nothing you can do or say to make God love you more or to make God love you less. I'm going to say it forever. You can't do anything to make God love you more or to love you less. When you're saved by God's grace, you can't boast about it. So when you sin, it means you're struggling, but it doesn't mean you're not saved. Does that make sense to you? I'll say it like this. Uh, Eden Trinity, my two daughters, 14 and 10, they, they, they go through all kinds of weird things. But it, it, being four years apart means, number one, they're best friends in a moment. And number two, they hate each other in the next millisecond. And I'll say to you like this, and I've told this story before, but here's the idea. I remember coming out of the, of, of the front porch one day. I walked outside, and when I looked out there, I saw maybe 50 yards away from me in the driveway my two daughters. And I think Trinity was probably seven, and maybe Eden was a little... And Trinity was sitting on her little tricycle, and she was gripping it. I mean, with her life, man. I mean, she was, and she was looking forward. She was really mad. And she was just talking. I was like, what in the world? And, and, I, and I, so that's the picture of what I have. Don't know what she said. And Eden is patting her on the head and smiling and saying, you know. So I go over, and this is what I heard out of their mouths. My little one was like, oh, I want to run her over so bad. My sister makes me so bad. I wish I could just run her over with this bike. And in my mind, I'm thinking, how much suppressed rage can you have at seven? You know what I'm saying? 17, I get, but seven? And she, I mean, listen, I mean, she's gripping it. But the Bible says not to do it, so I'm not going to do it. But I want to do it really bad. And I'm looking at her, and Eden is patting her on the head and laughing and going, that's right, Trinity, always do what the Bible says. And I'm leaning over to Eden going, you better stop patting her on the head. Because if she gets mad, she's going to run you over. And I know it may sound weird to you, but when I saw that happen, and even though it's just a little tiny illustration, I saw my seven-year-old daughter. I want to run her over. She makes me so mad. I know the Bible says don't do it, so I'm not going to do it. Man, I want to do it so bad. And here's what I thought. In case you don't know it, Christian, you're going to struggle like that the rest of your life. We live in this world, but we are not of this world. We are going to struggle. We are going to fight. But the idea that just because you struggle doesn't mean that you're not saved. Salvation, there has to be a point where you know for a fact that you have that. But then you've got to know that once you have it, it's there forever. He says, understanding who you were before Christ leads you to get who you are in Christ. And then the last thing is, then you know who you're meant to be. 
verse 10 for me is my favorite verse. It's kind of interesting because when I read it, I love the progression of it. He says, but we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he prepared in advance for us to do. In other words, you're not saved by works, but you are saved for works. That's a confusing thing sometimes because understand, we just got out of you're saved by God's grace. You can't earn it, but you're saved by God's grace so that you can do something with your life. We're not robots, but we're the ideas of understanding. We want to be like Christ. And he says, when you know who you are in Christ, you know you are his workmanship. You were created in Christ Jesus, by the way, to be like Christ Jesus. And he created you to be that way so that you could do good works, which he prepared way in advance for you to do. In other words, everybody in this room has influence. The problem is we battle with, no, but people don't like me. People don't listen to me. Hear me when I say this. Biblically, everybody has influence over somebody else. The question is, are you going to live his workmanship? Understanding that means you've got to live out God's will for your life. But the issue with that is, so many people put the workmanship thing in the future. I talk to students all the time, and here's what I get, and I love it. You know, and you're positive about it, that 10 years from now, you're going to come up with a cure for cancer. And I think that's awesome. 10 years from now, you might be some lawyer and knock out Roe versus Wade or something big. You might do... We all have these huge goals. And when I talk to students, they have these incredible goals that five years from now, you're going to do 10 years from now. Here's, here's the thing. I don't care what God's will is in your life 10 years from now. I need you to know what God's will is today. Because here's what I figured out. When you focus on what God's will is today and this week and you lock into it, 10 years from now it takes care of itself. What I have found out is so many people have anxiety because they're focused on 10 years from now. And when 10 years from now happens, they're not ready for it because they've done nothing to prepare in that process. In other words, there's got to be that time where you and I say, I'm ready to be who God wants me to be right now. I am his workmanship. And how does that work? It's interesting, that same Bible study I was doing in Birmingham, everybody I found out, like 60 or 70s, these high school students, they all went to one high school except for Shelby. She went to a different high school. And I found out they all went to one youth group. And that youth group had like 300 students that went to the one high school. In other words, at that public high school, this one youth group was 25% of the entire school. A fourth of the school. When I heard that out, that, I was like, did, did, uh, revival's happening now. I mean, dude, we, we got a corner now. This is going to be good. I mean, I came in the Bible study that night. I was ready to go. And so I asked the question, dude, I just heard y'all are one-fourth of the school. This is awesome. I said, how much spiritual influence do y'all have over your school? And listen, before I got the sentence out, this one dude goes, none. And I went, what? I go, dude, y'all are one-fourth of the school. How in the world do y'all have no influence spiritually over your school? And this 17-year-old girl looked really confused. And she leaned into me and she said this, wait. We go to school to learn. And I looked at that girl and I said something that I'm going to say to you right now. If you think that God put you at this university just so you could get an education, you just missed the Christian life. 
To adults, if you think God gave you that job you complain about all the time just so you can pay the bills, you just missed the Christian life. Because when he says he prepared in advance for you to do these things, you start to realize God is sovereign. That means God knows what he's doing. Not only did God put you at this university or where you're going, but weirdly enough, it's going to sound crazy. He put you sitting next to two people for a reason, and you hadn't even thought about that. It's when you start thinking about that that you realize you're his workmanship. When you don't worry about that, you're nothingness and you're apathetic. But when you start to realize, wait, before I was born, God had me in this class next to these two people. He had me on this sports team in the huddle with these people. When you know that and you realize he's got you there for a reason, that's when it's go time. That's when you've got to start to understand... I'm ready to be who God wants me to be. And this is not 10 years from now, but right now. That's why every spiritual awakening in history has happened starting with college students. Every one of them. You look at the history of spiritual awakenings. High school and college students started. Why? Because y'all are just dumb enough to not care what everybody thinks. <laughs> and it's when you have that understanding, it makes a difference. And here's, I'm going to define it for you like this. The only two like age groups that have that are college students and junior high. Junior high, they're just dumb. <laughs> you tell them to do something, they blindly do it. You get to high school and you think you got everything figured out. So you can't tell them anything. But then you get to college and you kind of know what's going on. And you know you're not dumb. You're just going to do it just to spite everybody else. <laughs> the idea of what he's saying is this. Now that you're here, then be his workmanship. Have influence and do something. Here's what we're going to find out. Because if you realize that, not only can God work in you, but you really start to realize he works through you. You see, the problem is we see stories in this book and we read them. And a lot of us, I've seen it. You can see your faces sometimes when we read it going, man, God moved huge back then. I speak to a lot of high school students, and it's almost like they read this book as Little Miss Muffet sat on a tuffet because they don't see this as real. And you know why they don't see it as real? Because so few people have locked into the Christian life. So few people have woken up and had an awakening to say, you know what, it's go time for me and I'm ready to do this. Because here's the deal. The stories you may live may not be in this book, but I do know this. Oh, they will be in history. But you've got to be willing to do it. I'll, I'll end it like this. I've spoken in a lot of places, and there's some really cool stuff I see. And people always ask me, what's the coolest student camp or college trip you've been? I've seen the greatest things and the craziest things you've ever seen in your life. Been traveling for 20 years. But I'll say it like this. Five, six years ago, a group called me up and said, hey, can you do a student camp for us? A bunch of high school students up in Tennessee. It was a group out of Jacksonville, Florida. And they said this, can you come? And I said, hey, this is what I do. I speak for a living. Let's go. Uh, it's my calling, man. Let's go. I'd never been to the church. Hadn't heard of the church. I get there, four or 500 high school students, and God is moving. We saw students give their life to Jesus. We saw adults give their life to Jesus, and it was awesome. It was a very typical youth camp that on the third night, they did a thing that most, of, most youth camps don't do anymore. They had talent show. Now, the reason I'm saying that, we stopped doing that because we figured out people don't have talent. Do you understand what I'm saying? <laughs> and I'm being serious when I say I'm not being mean. I'm just saying if we want to call it get on stage show, that's a little bit more accurate. But to call it talent to stretch in most places. But they were having talent shows. Here's the bigger issue. It was after the night service. 
We were starting at 11 p.m. and there were 48 people signed up for the talent show. About the only time I can connect with my family is at night. I'll call them up, talk to them and stuff, and I'm thinking, okay, I need to go do that, but I need to be, I'm camp pastor, so I need to be here in case something happens. And so I was like, you know what? I'm just going to sit on that front row and I'm going to do this thing. First girl got up and she sang, and listen, was really good. I mean, it was like, yeah, okay, this, this is talent show. The problem is girl number two got up and sang the exact same song. And as a man, I'm thinking, y'all could have sang a duet and saved me seven minutes right there. <laughs> five people later, this group does a little skit that was awesome. And then five people did the same skit. And I'm like going, y'all are, okay, please. And everything was going fine. And it's literally after one o'clock in the morning. And dude number 48 stands up. He's a 13-year-old kid. And I don't know why he got the microphone up, but he was getting the microphone ready. <laughs> and he gets a little table and he puts it there. And he's got this little bag and I didn't know what was going to happen. And he stops and he kind of looks at the crowd and he takes his shirt off. <laughs> now listen, listen to my heart here. I've never been in this church and I know churches do different things. But in my mind, I'm thinking, dude, if he takes his pants off, I'm gone. <laughs> like, get naked for Jesus, I'm not into that. Like, for any reason whatsoever. And so it's one of those moments where he takes his shirt off and I'm like, okie dokie. <laughs> and this was his talent. He takes a jar of Jiffy peanut butter out of the bag and he rubs the peanut butter all over his body. Now listen, and this is where it's going to make sense to you. And that was it. That's all he did. If you don't know this, I'm going to tell you this right now. Christians are the most gullible people on the face of the earth. You can get up and do a skit about nothing and at the end say, Jesus, and everybody goes, Amen. <laughs> and, and they'll be elbowing. That was a Jesus skit right there. That's how dumb we are sometimes, right? All this kid did, he took his shirt off, rubbed all the peanut butter on his body, and he walked off stage. <laughs> that moment gave my life meaning. <laughs> like, seriously, up until that moment, I didn't like the talent show. Right then, I was like, I'm in. Dude, I'm in. I called my wife at 1.23 in the morning. That's how vivid it is to me. I wake her up and she's like, honey, is everything okay? I go, everything's fine. She goes, well, what are you doing? I said, guess who I just met? She goes, who's that? I said, peanut butter boy. <laughs> and she goes, who? And I said, I'll explain it later. I stayed up all night long. I was just like, that kid just did that. <laughs> Got up the next morning, I'm going to do a morning service. And I got there early and always get there and pray. There was this man that was there. Listen, he was a doctor at the camp. And, and I was there telling him, he was like, hey, man, he, he came up to me and said, hey, dude, two nights ago, my best friend got saved here. I brought him here. And I was like, that's awesome. God's moving at this camp. And he goes, hey, man, were you in the talent show last night? I was like, yeah, man. And he said, uh, did you see my boy? And I go, I don't know. Now, understand, this, this man was my prayer partner always. And I respected this man. <laughs> and I look at this guy and I go, well, I don't know who was your boy. There was like 48 people there. And he goes, that boy that rubbed peanut butter on <laughs> At that point, I heard a loud noise in the back of the room. And Peanut Butter Boy is a little 13-year-old kid that's like trying to break a chair in front of everybody. <laughs> and I look at him and I go, that's your boy? And he's like, that's my boy. <laughs> and I go, Peanut Butter Boy is your boy? <laughs> And listen, when I tell you this, I mean, the look of like, this is my boy. <laughs> now understand, I'm doing every day, I want to learn how to be a good dad. And when I meet good dads, I'm always like, what, what did you do to get your daughter to do right? 
but I'm having a weird moment with this man. And I look at him and I go, man, you seem to be proud of your boy. And he's like, I'm so proud of my boy. Because in my mind, and I want you to know this as a dad, there's a fine line between me loving you and being proud of you. I'm going to love my girls no matter what. Plenty of things they do I'm not proud of. And here out of nowhere, he's like, and I go, man, i got to ask you. I mean, seriously, i got to ask you a question. And he goes, what's that? I said, what makes you so proud of your boy? And he looked at me and he goes, I'm proud of my boy. Because one year ago today, he led me to Jesus. All of a sudden, this story changed. At that point, I turn around and look at Peanut Butter Boy trying to break a chair. <laughs> and here's what I'm thinking. I think I need that kid on my team. And this is the way the story goes. One year before that, this kid had never been to church in his entire life. And there was somebody that was just told, hey man, invite your friends to camp. And somebody goes up and goes, hey, you want to go to youth camp with me? And he goes, sure. The first night, one of my friends was speaking there, led him to the Lord. He gave his life to Christ the first night of that camp. First church service he'd ever been in his life. They said that this kid went from point A to point B to point C in one week. They said he did crazy stuff, like in like free time he read his Bible. He would like go up to all the adults and say, hey man, it says here that I'm supposed to go like share my faith and stuff. So what does that mean? And he would get answers the entire week, a 12-year-old boy, to the point to where at the end of the week, he goes home, his dad is home, who's a doctor, and he says this, Dad, can I tell you the greatest story I've ever heard in my entire life? And he led his dad to Christ. He was so excited about that, he said, where's mom? And he went and talked to his mom. And he led his mom to the Lord. Then he led his brother to the Lord. Then he led his other brother to the Lord. By the way, we're talking about a 12-year-old kid. Then Sunday comes around, because camp was over on Friday, and they didn't know what to do. But this kid's kind of like outgoing. So he gets on his phone, and he's like, okay, I remember the name of the church. And, okay, here's what, okay, they got two services. I guess we'll go to the later one. They weren't sure how to dress. And they went, and there was a room of 2,000 people. And he said this in front of all these people. The pastor tells the story and said it was interesting. He said he was in the middle of preaching his sermon like me and said that little 12-year-old boy came and stood right in front of him. It was a very traditional church. So, you know, all churches are like, bless that little boy. <laughs> Like something's wrong with him. It's okay. And you and I would do the same thing. They're just holding back. And even the pastor was like, I thought something was wrong and I didn't want to do anything. So the pastor kept preaching. And the little boy just kept staring at him. And he said, you know, after five minutes, you've got to say something. And the pastor tells a story. I wish he could tell it instead of me. But he said, he finally just stopped in front of 2,000 people. He goes, hey, son, is there anything I can do for you? He said, the little boy just started talking. So I, I don't... I'm not sure. He said, um, I went to this thing called youth camp uh, at your church. And the first night, uh, I became a Christian. And I started to learn some things. And, and I've been reading my Bible and stuff. And I came home and I was telling my family about it. And I led them to make the same decision I did. And he said, I was reading in this thing. I think it's called Matthew or something. But it says that we're supposed to be baptized. And I wanted to talk to you about that. But I can wait till you get done. <laughs> what he said? And the pastor started laughing like you, and he said, no, son, let's just, let's just handle that right now. And the next week, the entire family was baptized together. Here's the deal. I tell a story like that for this reason. 
it's one thing to hear a story like that and go, wow, it's just like, man, he'd never been to church. Man, he goes and he talks to his dad. He led his family. This is a, my favorite part of that story is this. The kid that started that little revival, his name wasn't Peter, Paul, Moses. His name wasn't even Jesus. He was a 12-year-old kid who heard this book, responded to it, and did it. He was his workmanship. He said, God, don't just work in me. I want you to work through me. And that is my prayer for you. Not for your life, but for this week. I pray that this week you walk in to understand why God has you here. And I mean here. I pray that you understand that God wants to use you in such a big way. I used to speak at a thing called Overflow in Wilmington, North Carolina, believe it or not. Jared Wood and I used to like text back and forth because we meet on Tuesday nights, and they still do. I was up there for three years. I flew up all the time, and here's the deal. There was a point where I just told those college students, if there's anybody you want to share Christ with, bring them next week. I'll share the gospel with them, and let's see what happens. And God moved. Why? Because they did something. They didn't just read it. They didn't just amen to it. They didn't just clap. They said this. I want to be a part of this. Because I'm going to tell you something right now. Once you get a taste of being a part of this, oh, you can never go back to the way you used to be. Because once you sense and understand God's grace and you live it out and you lead somebody else to God's grace and they live it out, you start to realize it's worth living for. Thank you for listening to the Overflow Podcast. Please feel free to download and share with friends. We ask that you do not alter any of the previous content in any way. For more information about Overflow, feel free to visit us online at overflowdenton.org.